Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, of now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing love. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Glory to his holy third day resurrection. We glorify his resurrection on the third day. Thank you, Father Joseph. I do need to say that Dr. Cutterback and I have been been uh, friends for a number of years now. I just just emailed my the, my college for some transcripts I needed, and uh, and the the registrar says, "Can you believe it's been ten years?" And uh, it was just about ten or actually eleven years ago that I was a student living in Dr. Cutterback's house, enjoying daily trips back and forth to college with with him. And I have appreciated the friendship we've maintained over the years. So please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed that too, Deacon. All right. Well, now for the exciting conclusion of our four-week introduction to reading the Summa. I am, I, I am excited. I, I hope uh, today some things will, will come together. Um, I do I do have for you at some point, I don't have it as a handout, I have to say out loud to you some uh, possible suggested reading, so don't let me uh, forget to do that. Um, we have on the handout a couple. The main thing on the handout here is, first of all, a text. The first text is one we'll look at in, in a few minutes um, that I did not assign you. The second one is the key thing from what I did assign you that I just wanted you to have in front of you. Again, if you are here or watching and didn't read the assignment, that is okay. The assignment was question 1, article 2 of the third part of the Summa, and question 40, article 1. Uh, but what I want to do first is review a couple of the key themes that we saw last week. You might remember that in the Summa, we learn a lot about St. Thomas's worldview by the very structure itself. The fundamental theme, again, in, in Latin is exitus reditus, go, things going forth from God, things returning from God. So in the first part, we saw about God in himself, and then God as creating, and fundamental aspects of his creation, especially rational creation, creation angels, and then men. 
in the second part, we then saw about the fundamental aspects of the return. What are the basic principles that we need to understand how rational creatures are ultimately to make their way back to the source from which they've come. I'm going to, in a moment, tell again, look again with you briefly at a few of those basic principles because it's a beautiful lead-in to today because the third part, as we saw a couple of classes a couple of times ago, the tertiary parse, is about Christ. Christ understood as the way, as the key to how we rational creatures are to come to our end who is in God. And I hope you enjoyed. If you had a chance to read the articles uh, that you looked at, and if you didn't, I hope we'll be able to see a few key things about it and be able to enjoy some of the richness. Uh, I, I think we'll be seeing, uh, dare I say, theology at its best here in St. Thomas. Quickly, again, I love, I, I myself never tire. I'm not sure about my students, but I myself never tire of thinking again of the basic elements of the story. It, 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 we need to try, and again, we've, we've talked a little about this. St. Thomas was such an astoundingly good teacher, says Joseph Pieper, because he always looked again, afresh anew, with the eyes of a child. So with the eyes of a student who's just seeing these things for the first time and is astounded, is moved with wonder. If we are not moved with wonder at these things we're talking about, I dare say we're, we're not seeing. And so we have the exciting opportunity again just to remind ourselves of the story that is greater than any story we could possibly have thought of. Just think about that for a moment. We could not have begun to think of a story that is as amazing in its beauty and power as the story that simply is our story, period. I, I don't even want to say the words fairy tale. It's, it, it's like a fairy tale. It's much better than any possible fairy tale. Though fairy tales themselves, good ones, can remind us of how reality is even better than we realize it is. I love to remind my students, and I say it to you, and this is one thing I think we can learn from St. Thomas Aquinas. Reality is always, always better than we have yet understood. And that will be the case forever. No matter how much we come to see, the truth, the full truth, is always better. So, what's our big picture? God, all happy in himself, beyond the metaphysical possibility of increasing in happiness. 
because his perfection is so complete, decides in the eternal chambers in unparalleled generosity to share his happiness. The root of everything, according to this world view of St. Thomas, is simply that. God, who is his own happiness, decides in utter generosity that he wants specifically other persons to do what he does in some way and thus share in some way in his happiness. That's the first principle of everything. So then as the great artist, he calls into being this great cosmos, which we must remind ourselves is always about rational creatures. It's always about rational creatures becoming, as St. Irenaeus says, by living our vocation fully. We become the glory of God by living out our calling fully. That can't be said of any other creatures. The lower creatures are all part of that great artist's plan. How can he set everything up as the perfect artist? How can he set everything up for the sake of empowering rational creatures, angels and men, angels and men, to grow and share in his likeness. Note, it would have been possible. He could have created creatures that already were in the state of happiness. But in his great wisdom, he did not. He created us all set up so that we would see in our own being and nature and through God speaking to us, we would see the invitation. So everything is set up to be an invitation so that we, in imitation of Him, can act from our own knowledge, from our own will, seeing, loving, and in acting, we can freely choose. Isn't it interesting? He did not have to set it up that way. But he has set it up so that we are, as it were, thrown out, cast forth from him with a spin back towards him. But with this incredible drama, incredible drama of will we take that call in hand and see and love and act freely so as to follow, so as to receive and live out the invitation that is written into creation. We talked a couple, we talked last time about a couple of different aspects of this return. I want to just remind you of a couple of them. That the end is the first principle of everything. That the end should be the source of order and unity in our life. We know that everybody takes something as ultimate end in life. So one way again of casting the drama is, will we freely set our sights on 
the end that is truly the only end for which we were made. For we are free. Isn't this amazing? To make our, for instance, bellies be our God. And to arrange our life, to give order to our life by something that is so far below us. So one way of casting the drama again is, will we, seeing the true end, loving, then freely enact so that we take that end as the first principle of our lives, as the source of order in our lives, as the source of unity in our lives, so that everything about our life is given meaning by the one thing that ultimately is the meaning. I had forgotten to say in the lecture last time, and I said it in the question and answer last time, and so I want to repeat it again. The words that are said of St. Chad. In all things, in all things, he was so cognizant of his end. I just think in the spirit of St. Thomas, it's hard for me to imagine a more complete and simple expression of praise of a human life. In all things, he was so cognizant of his end. Not end in the sense of death, though that's implied. End in the sense of what it's all about in each thing that he did. We talked a little bit about the nature of the voluntary. That our actions are truly our own. I love this point. It, it, it can seem very, very dry, but I just want to remind you of it. Our actions are so much our own that we truly can be called, with that beautiful word, responsible. We, unlike any other, any creature that is not rational, because our actions are voluntary, because they flow from our knowledge and our love, as God's actions flow from His knowledge and love and are eminently, supremely, and perfectly His and all praise is due to Him for these actions that are His. Our actions, whether we like it or not, will flow from our own knowledge and our own decisions, our own willing, such that all of our voluntary actions are ours, such that we are true objects as Aristotle said so simply, and St. Thomas follows him, of praise or blame. You don't truly praise or blame a dog, or a tree, or a mountain, or the sun. But a human person, you can praise. Well done. Well done. Or you can blame. Because those actions are ours. God designed it. Our actions are ours. Like His are His. So that perhaps, if we, again, the return being like the coming forth, that we always understand the return in terms of how we have come forth according to God's own knowledge and love, when we return, 
well, according to our own knowledge and love, we would be worthy to a certain extent, in the real extent, of praise, of being honored ourselves without end for what we have done. Or the opposite. Another aspect we noted briefly last time is that the life of holiness is a life of consistency. Of putting first things first. Of making the true ends be the root source and principle of all we do. And this is the basis for understanding the great point that, again, St. Thomas takes from the great teacher Aristotle, the great philosopher Aristotle. We are creatures that are designed to form habits. And I want to talk about that again for just a moment. Again, we might have just been tempted to think, oh, that's interesting. When we act in certain ways, grooves are formed in us so that it starts to become habitual. Hmm, isn't that interesting? We must remember, every time we discover something like that about the way we are, there's a very good reason for it. The master artist has designed things. This is key to understanding the moral life. He has designed things so that the way we act forms deep grooves in us so that we become a certain kind of person through the actions that we do. I become that kind of person. It is now habitual for me to respond to the world and those around me in this way. It has truly become me that I act in this way. And, 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 I, and I cast it to you this way. God acts always with perfect consistency. He always acts from the fullness of who He is. Nothing is random. And He has set us up, the very structure of how things become habitual in us by our action. He has set that up as yet another way that we become like Him. Think of what it means to be holy. Someone has become habitually loving of God and others. So that now those actions flow forth with stability, ease, pleasure, beauty. You know what God's going to do. You know what the man of virtue is going to do. He will act well, for it will flow from the fullness of who he is. You perhaps have heard the rather enigmatic line of St. Augustine, which can be very much misunderstood. Maybe you already know what I'm going to quote. Love God, and then do what you will. Love God, and then do what you will. There's a whole understanding behind that, which is fundamentally the one that we're referring to here. When loving God has become habitual and when we have formed the various virtues so that there are these deep grooves in us of acting according to God's great loving plan and invitation to us, then we truly can just act out what we want to do. 
what we love to do, for it will be that which is righteous. It's an astounding thing. Have we not seen that in our own lifetime with someone such as now St. John Paul II or Blessed Mother Teresa? You see the meaning of this. Good actions, acting according to God's plan, is who they are. It flows from them because they have become this way. As St. Thomas would say, it is their second nature to be good. You know for sure how they're going to act. Basically, it doesn't take away their freedom, but it makes them absolutely reliable. God wants our good actions to flow from us with that stability and joy with which His good actions flow from Him. This brings us to the Tertia Pars, the third part, ladies and gentlemen. I... I having reminded ourselves of some beautiful aspects of the return. This is where our Lord comes into the picture. For us to be truly conformed to the plan that God has written into creation and has given us supernaturally, we need Christ. That sounds obvious. St. Thomas is going to hold our hand here and show us the, the, the richness to the line, Christ is the way. Christ is the way for us to live. I'm about to say something kind of corny, but it's not corny. Christ is the way for us to live the dream, to live the fairy tale. But it's not a dream or a fairy tale that we've been talking about. Would you be so kind as to take a peek at the handout that I gave you? <clears throat> the stage is set for the beautiful third part which has so many wonderful aspects to it, and we're just going to hit on a couple of them. This is the first question, is the first article of the third part, and remember the structure of, a, of a, an article in St. Thomas, a question is asked, objections are, are given against what St. Thomas's answer will be, and then an on the contrary is given with an authority who agrees with him, then comes the body, then he replies to the objections. This right here is actually the on the contrary. Here, normally, the authorities that he'll quote will be scripture. The question of the very first article of question one is whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. I, I invite you to try with St. Thomas to enter into the utterly amazing aspects of this question. This is what theology does for us. It takes us to the, just the fundamental aspects that we've been taught in our catechism. But we need to go beyond what we've learned in our catechism. We need to go more deep. We need to go deeper into it to try to look again afresh. God becoming man is such a thing fitting now the great thing is the article that you read for today was then is it necessary note there's a beautiful progression this first article asks was it fitting the article that, that I signed for today is is it necessary we'll turn to that in a moment let's just look at the on the contrary here obviously the objections argued that it would not be fitting and some very good objections can be made against the fittingness of God becoming man 
We won't look at them. It would seem most fitting that by visible things, the invisible things of God should be made known. I, I'm just getting chills looking at St. Thomas being so simple. Not how so simple his, his philosophy of human nature is always at work here. He never forgets who we are, just as God never forgets who we are. He's looking very simply. Why would God do this? It would seem most fitting that by visible things, the invisible things of God should be made known. For to this end was the whole world made. Isn't that an amazing statement? To this end, that's referring to what was already said, was the whole world made. I invite you when you wake up tomorrow morning, or when you wake up tonight, it's going to be dark, and because there's clouds, you won't even be able to see the sky. Think again of this line. The whole world was made for what ends? The visible things should make known invisible things. Quote St. Paul, For the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. But as John Damascene says, By the mystery of the Incarnation are made known at once the goodness, the wisdom, the justice, and the power might of God. So look how very simply St. Thomas is answering this by saying, is it fitting that God would be incarnating? Remember, incarnation literally in Latin just means God going into flesh. Is it fitting that God would go into flesh? Well, haven't we already seen, says St. Thomas, that God's whole program in making the material cosmos is how can I show myself and the higher things by visible things? How can I show myself and the higher things by visible things? So you see what St. Thomas is going to say in a sense is what could be more fitting? Not that you would ever expect it. Not that you could ever think of demanding it. But now that it's been done, can we look back and say, is this fitting? This is in accord with the super generosity of a God who, having made us incarnate intellects, will always be looking to teach us according to the way He's made us. So He'll come into the flesh. And look at the beautiful way He just parses that out quickly. By the mystery of the Incarnation are made known at once the goodness, the wisdom, the justice, and the power and might of God. Look what the Father of the Church says here. His goodness, for He did not despise the weakness of His own handiwork. His justice, since on man's defeat He caused the tyrant to be overcome by none other than man. And yet, he did not snatch men forcibly from death. There's so much written into there, into, into the justice of God's going to overcome the great enemy by man himself. And yet also, in justice, he's not going to force man here either. That's all coming under justice. But he goes on, his wisdom. For he found a suitable discharge for a most heavy debt. Can think with the theologian's mind. Think with St. Thomas, who has looked with wonder at what is a generous God to do 
when having already set up everything perfectly, his creatures, in a resounding way, just say, no, no. But God found a suitable way of taking care of a most heavy debt. Finally, his power, infinite might, for there's nothing greater than for God to become incarnate. So already, he's just saying, just in the fact that God is going to come into man, there's this whole set of ways that again, as always, as always, God is revealing himself to us through the material realm so that we, lower rational creatures, might better make our return to him. Let's turn now to the second article which I assigned for today. Whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate. He opens with a classic distinction. I mean, this is just classic St. Thomas here. Well, let's be super precise. Was it necessary? What's his answer? Was it necessary? No. But, yes. Right? This is classic St. Thomas. You think you're not, teachers aren't supposed to contradict themselves. But he's not. He's just making the proper distinction. And see, that proper distinction is extremely important to understand. It was not necessary. And the fact that it wasn't absolutely necessary in what sense? So he distinguishes between two kinds of necessity. What is absolutely necessary that some end be achieved? Or what is necessary in the sense that the end is better achieved? So he he gives the example of a horse for a long journey. Very appropriate to St. Thomas' time there where the horse would be the way that you would get across Europe. And so, is a horse, if he's in Italy, is a horse necessary to go to Paris? Absolutely, no. (laughs) Practically speaking, as it were, that it be done fittingly, that it be done best, yes. I I picture a child saying to his parent, is it... Not that every child, this would apply to every child, but certainly for many child, this would be, children would be a great example. Dad, do I have to do this studying? Is it necessary that I do this studying? Maybe I should just do St. Thomas with them next time. <laughs> Actually, no. No, it's not. It's not absolutely necessary. No, you cannot study that. But is it necessary in the sense if you are reasonably going to achieve what you are called to achieve, yes, it is necessary. And that's the necessity we're concerned about right now. This is exactly what St. Thomas does, does here. But he wanted, to, he wanted to point out, God could have saved us in another way. It was not absolutely necessary for God to become man in order to save us. But it was necessary in order that the end be better achieved. And now what he does, ladies and gentlemen, this is classic St. Thomas, is he says, let's look at two ways, two general groupings of points where we're going to see just how necessary it was for our salvation that God become man. Note how this is setting the the context and giving us the central points of understanding Christ the way to salvation. Because, of course, Christ is the incarnate God. So seeing here why it was necessary in the second sense of necessary is fundamentally giving us insight into why 
why we need Christ if we are ever going to achieve that for which we're made, the only thing that will satisfy us. So he divides it into how God's becoming man furthered our good, he calls it our furtherance in good, and withdraws us from evil. And he gives a little list under each, and I'd like to just quickly look through those, look through those with you. And, 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 we'll, and we'll just move through it quickly. Our faith is made more certain. So just remember what we're doing here. We're seeing how the theologian is helping us look at simple truths of our faith to have a profound insight into what it means for us concretely and practically. Why is it necessary that God became man? Why in His super generosity is God going to say, this is what I'm going to do for them? Because first of all, our faith is going to be made more certain. There can be faith in God even if He hasn't become incarnate. But He says, when we see God speaking to us, it helps us believe Him. Isn't that dear of God to think that way? I want them to see me speaking to them so they might better believe I am speaking to them. Of course, it will still require faith because you're seeing a man speaking and you have to believe that it is God speaking. It says our hope will be strengthened. Here there's a great quotation from St. Augustine. I will read you. I'm in the body of the article. Secondly, with regard to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened. Hence, Augustine says, and throughout these, you notice in these articles, you go constantly going to his great teacher, St. Augustine. Nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. And what could afford us a stronger proof of this than that the Son of God should become a partner with us of human nature? What better way to give us hope that everything in life will be possible, will be okay, not just okay, but super than that he has come to join us in the journey. This is how our teachers here are thinking. Thirdly, that charity is kindled. Thirdly, with regard to charity, which is greatly enkindled by this, hence again, Augustine says, what greater cause is there of the Lord's coming than to show God's love for us? He adds afterwards, if we have been slow to love, at least let us hasten to love in return. Fourthly, and here's a, here's a really key one, with regard to well-doing in which he has set us an example. Hence, Augustine says in a sermon, man, this is classic Augustine, listen to this, man who might be seen was not to be followed, but God was to be followed who could not be seen. Therefore, God was made man 
that he who might be seen by man and whom man might follow might be shown to man. Simply, isn't it astounding that God in his care for us, St. Thomas is saying, has given us an example so that in anything we ever need to deliberate about how might we act, we have a man who has acted as regard this area, at least in general. This aspect of God becoming man and this being necessary to save us because particularly given the fall, if we're now ever going to figure out how we need to act to live the plan that was written into us from the start, we now need this astounding example to show us exactly what we need to do. Fifthly, under this ways that he's furthering us in good, he says, with regard to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and end of human life, we are made partakers we are made partakers in the divine nature. And this line that he loves to quote from Augustine, God was made man, that man might be made God. So God has become man, become incarnate, so that we might be divinized. Quickly, a few points on the withdrawal, for e- withdrawal from evil. And then we'll go to our second text for today and wrap up. Several simple points here about how God, by becoming man, is going to help us, not only in all those positive good ways that have just been said, but several ways of avoiding evil. The first one is a little bit unusual. Man is taught not to prefer or honor the devil. I actually think there's an amazing wisdom there that St. Thomas sees that those, in any case, who don't live in an age such as ours that is so astoundingly ignorant of the realm of the spiritual, St. Thomas thinks we might have been tempted to say, oh my, there are these fallen angels. We need to subordinate ourselves to them. They are so much greater than we are. And he's saying, that's something that God, by taking on human nature, is going to say, you don't have to worry about the fallen angels, for I have taken on your nature. That's his point number one. Second point, we are taught how great our dignity is, lest we should sully it with sin. God took on our nature, thus teaching us, dare we sin against the nature that is so high that God would make it his own. Presumption is removed. This is his third point under our withdrawal from evil. Presumption is removed since God comes to us through no merit of ours. I think there's much here. Our presumption is removed for we see God has become man. This is something we in no way elicited. It is pure gift. How could we ever presume to have our own destiny ultimately in our own control? God teaches us this. 
by becoming man. Our pride, he says, is remedied by seeing God's humility. And ultimately, finally, fifth, we are freed from sin by a man. I kept thinking about this one. He, he keeps saying this again and again. What a gift it is that we were freed by one of our own. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to enter into the mind of St. Thomas to, to try to appreciate that better. He says it as though it will just immediately be evident to us. What a gift that our freedom is won by a brother of our own. I just leave that with you to think about a little bit more. Is, isn't this just, I, I want to say, maybe this is a little bit of exaggeration, but theology at its best, just looking at something that we've looked at so many times, the Incarnation, and watching this great Master say, why was it so fitting that God did it? And he says these very simple things are so rich for our meditation that help us understand the central truth of the faith and change our spiritual life likewise. Let's turn to our, our other article, Whether Christ Should Have Associated with Men or Led a Solitary Life. Whether Christ Should Have Associated with Men or Led a Solitary Life. I, I, I love prepping myself by, by looking at the objections and I, I just quick teaser for you. The, the first objection. It would seem that Christ should not have associated with men, but should have led a solitary life. For it behooved Christ to show by his manner of life, not only that he was a man, but that he was God. But it's not becoming that God should associate with men, for it's written in Daniel, except the gods whose conversation is not with men. And then he quotes this great teacher, philosopher Aristotle, who says... A god would not need to live in community. If you don't live in community, you're either a beast or you're a god. So he gives very reasonable things that would make us say, why would God, now that he's been made man, when he then needed to choose some way that he was going to live as a man, why would he choose to live in community and among others. Let's go right to the body of the article, and it's, again, a, a little masterpiece and a very short one. First, the on the contrary says, afterwards he was seen upon earth and conversed with men, from Baruch. I answer that, says St. Thomas. Christ's manner of life had to be in keeping with the end. End, again, always means goal, ultimate purpose. Christ's manner of life had to be in keeping with the end of his incarnation, by reason of which he came into the world. Now, he came into the world first. So watch. What he's going to do right here, and that's right, this is on your handout. Should, should have reminded you of that. Reading from my book. He's going, to, he's going to go, or you always go to the end first. Why did Christ most of all become man? Let's see what the reason was. Given what the reason is, that will be the basis for our judging. How should he have lived among us? And it's going to help us understand why he did what he did. Now he came into the world first. So you know that we're going to get, we're going to get three beautiful points here. And then we're going to move to our conclusion. He came into the world first, that he might publish the truth. Thus he says himself, For this was I born, and for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Hence it was fitting, not that he should hide himself by living a solitary life, but that he should appear openly and preach in public. 
Wherefore, he says to those who wish to stay him, to other cities also I must, must preach the kingdom of God, for therefore am I sent. So, God among us, as always, for our teaching. He's come to teach us. He's going to walk among us. He's going to live among us. Secondly, He came in order to free man from sin, according to 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Hence, as Chrysostom says, although Christ might, while staying in the same place, have drawn all men to Himself to hear His preaching, yet He did not do so, thus giving us the example to go about and seek those who perish, like the shepherd who in search of the lost sheep, and the physician in his, in his attendance on the sick. Why has God become man? To free us from sin. Thus he is going to show he's going to come and find us. Interestingly, you note the aspect there of showing us we need to go and find others also. Thirdly, and this will be our beautiful final main point. He came that by him we might have access to God. As it is written, Romans 5.2, And thus it was fitting that he should give men confidence in approaching him by associating familiarly with them. Wherefore it is written, It came to pass as he was sitting in the house, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. On which Jerome comments as follows, They had seen the publican who had been converted from a sinful to a better life. Consequently, they did not despair of their own salvation. I go back to Matthew, Matthew 9 there. For, uh, here, we're, we're really getting to the crux of the matter. What has God made us for? What's the main reason we came forth from Him in the first place? As rational creatures who can see and love and then act. It's ultimately... So that, as we said already, we can share his happiness. What's it mean when two, when two share in one happiness? What's that called? When two share in one happiness. Those two are what? They are friends. It's ultimately about friendship. May I just do this third point again? Third reason that God has become incarnate and in view of which it's fitting that he would have spent his time among people, which he spent so much of his time. Matthew 9.10 It came to pass, as he was sitting in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus. Is that not an astounding line? God has made himself so available that men who know themselves to be in so many ways falling short of who they are had confidence to sit down next to him. Imagine what that means of what his personal 
demeanor must have been. I'm just going to tell you a, a word for your interest to tell you that I'd like you to read a couple of things after we're all done here, and then I'm going to end with something from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of St. John. In the upcoming week, may I recommend that you read the question on the Ascension. St. Thomas has a great question on the Ascension of Christ, which we will celebrate this week. Question 57 of the third part is on the Ascension, and it's absolutely beautiful. 57 of the third part. Question 57 of the third part. The entire question is on the Ascension. I also would like to just advert to another key part of the Tertiary Pars, though he did not finish it, was that he was going to go through all of the sacraments. After having gone through why Christ became incarnate, in the various aspects of Christ's way of life, he wanted to go through the different sacraments. And the sacramental theology here is astounding. And I just want to read you a very quick line here. This is in question 61. So question 60 asks, what is a sacrament? I think even based upon our little practice together, you might be able to appreciate that one. You will be able to appreciate that one. Question 61, after 67, what is a sacrament? 61 is of the necessity of the sacraments. And listen to, in the first article on the necessity of the sacraments, what he has to say here. It follows, therefore, that through the institution of the sacraments, man, consistently with his nature is instructed through sensible things. He is humbled through confessing that he is subject to corporeal or bodily things, seeing that he receives assistance through them. And he's even preserved from bodily hurt by the healthy exercise of the sacraments. I just wanted to give you a quick example. He is showing again, in view of who man is and God's loving plan, how the sacraments are true causes of grace, true causes of God empowering us to finish that return. I want to wrap up. Remember last time I quoted you something that had been in the reading from last time. St. Thomas, quoting Aristotle, says, Friends have the same likes and dislikes. I think the best way to understand God's having called us to relationship with Him is to meditate upon the meaning of friendship. Two people living one happiness together, having the same likes and dislikes. And that Christ is the means, Christ is the way, Christ is the end of our growing in friendship with God. And I conclude with the 15th chapter of the Gospel of St. John, verses 9 and following. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Live on in my love. You will live in my love if you keep my commandments, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and live in His love. And this I tell you, that my joy may be yours, and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, love one another as I have loved you. There's no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I no longer speak of you as slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is about. Instead, I call you friends. 
since I have made known to you all that I heard from my Father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback, for another wonderful presentation and a wonderful series and taking the time away from your family. We'll take a short three to four minute break and uh, come back for question and answer. Uh, you said to remind us of the list of readings. Okay, ready? Here we go. Here's a few. Um, I was asked, although Henry's not here, um, the, uh, of some of the things that are summations of the Summa. There's a tour of the Summa by Monsignor Glenn. We mentioned that last week. That is a good, good resource that um, follows closely the question structure. So I, I think that's a, that is a good summation. There's something also by Peter Kreeft. You probably are familiar with Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. He has a Summa of the Summa. I have not read it, but Peter Kreeft is um, very reliable. Um, he also has a book called A Shorter, a Shorter Summa, The Essential Philosophical Philosophical Passages of St. Thomas's Summa. So that's A Shorter Summa by Peter Kreeft, but that's emphasizing philosophical points. Um, there is a guide to Thomas Aquinas by Joseph Pieper. Now this is, this is a general introduction to St. Thomas. This is not a summation of the Summa. So moving on, A Guide to Thomas Aquinas by Joseph Pieper. Pieper is P-I-E-P-E-R. P-I-E-P-E-R. Anything by Joseph Pieper, Joseph with an F, the German spelling, is, is always worthwhile. Many of his books are published by Ignatius Press. Um, just to remind you of the great G.K. Chesterton book on Aquinas called Thomas Aquinas, the Dumb Ox. There's also a book by Ralph McInerney. Ralph McInerney was one of the great Thomists of the 20th century. And he just has a book called St. Thomas Aquinas, Ralph McInerney. You can't go wrong with Ralph. I wanted to also note a, a good work that, um, of St. Thomas's himself. Now I'm going to tell you something about St. Thomas, works of St. Thomas himself. He wrote commentaries, and this was for more common folk. This was not, this was, so this is more accessible than the Summa. It was, he wrote commentaries on the commandments. He wrote a commentary on the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer and a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Those are all available from Sophia Press in a book called The Aquinas Catechism. They call it, Sophia Press sometimes does these names that they just, there's not something that's called the Aquinas Catechism otherwise, but that has this commentary on the commandments, on the Lord's Prayer, and on the Apostles' Creed. And those were more sermonic. And so they are, um, Again, in general, more accessible. So that might be a, a great introduction to many people to reading St. Thomas himself. And again, that's from Sophia Press called the Aquinas Catechism. Finally, he has many scriptural commentaries now available. I didn't get the publisher, but you can find a commentary of St. Thomas on the Gospel of St. John now. You can find his commentaries on various Pauline epistles. And those, especially for priests, they're great um, um, 
of resources, but, but for all of us also, when you want to understand some difficult texts in the Gospel of St. John, you can go there and see what St. Thomas has to say. Um, finally, I mentioned this earlier. It's on the first handout the first week, but there's a, a French-Dominican named Jean-Pierre Torrel. Two R's, two L's. Has a two-volume series. It's a little bit more academic, but it's the definitive biography. The first volume is the definitive bi- biography of St. Thomas Aquinas, which is really quite exciting. If you're interested in the Middle Ages and want to get a sense of the whole big picture, first is the, and then the second is called St. Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master. That's Catholic University Press. Thank you. Um, since St. Thomas relies so heavily on the idea that everything has an end, and many, most people today wouldn't agree with that, or a lot of people, does that make St. Thomas less relevant for talking to the modern mind, or...? Uh, that, that, that is a very, the, very good question, particularly when uh, the, the thing that sharpens the problem that you're referring to is that St. Thomas thinks that it is evident when you look at the natural world, the things in the natural lower world are acting, were designed, are acting for an end, as Aristotle did too. There are, there are some prominent thinkers who think that we need to leave that aspect of St. Thomas's philosophy behind, and particularly when it comes to doing his ethics, they want to leave behind this realm of what's called natural t- Theology. So you raise a, a, a point that you might get some different answers depending on uh, to whom you speak. Personally, I am absolutely convinced that teleology, in the realm of things, acting for an end, is at the center of St. Thomas's worldview. It's at the center of St. Thomas's worldview because it's at the center of reality, and that we that we need to fight the the view of of, of a science that has many great insights, but to the extent that modern science tends to make us not see the world in terms of these things are acting in a coordinated way for good ends is, is fundamentally perverting of us. St. Thomas is insisting God is trying to teach us through the natural world. We are to rise to things invisible through things visible. So I, I would rather say, no, it's, it's highly relevant. It might make him less accessible to some, but we have to find ways of trying to, as a great teacher would, draw people's eyes back to the truths of what's there. And in a certain reforming of Science will be an important part of that, but I, I, in no way lessens his relevance. I think it makes it be more important. Thank you. Question coming in online. I don't know if you'll want to take this or not. It's up to you. How would St. Thomas respond to the modern notion of alternative universes, i.e. many worlds theorem? Would he simply say that if such universes exist with persons in them, they too were redeemed by our Lord? Um, I, I, I should say I, I, I am not sure, uh, and, and partially because I'm not exactly sure what might be held by said theorem. Um, there are a lot of philosophical issues involved there. Could there be such thing as a rational creature that is not human or not an angel? I, 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 I'm not going to proclaim absolutely on that, but I, I think in St. Thomas's mind, the, the cosmos that we know has the characteristics of having a beautiful plenitude and a certain fullness, where St. Thomas likes to say, you can see in this great cosmos from the bottom to the top that nothing is missing. 
So I, I, I think it, 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 it's what is it impossible that there be that there be another something somewhere? Perhaps not. I think would St. Thomas perhaps in the realm of fittingness say it doesn't seem that that would make sense. I think I would pursue that, but I don't want to proclaim for sure. Very okay. good, a reasonable question. And then uh, Julie Latham writing it online. I wanted to add, what about the book, The One Minute Aquinas with Kevin Vost? I think Vost or Vost? I don't know. Don't I, know. I wish I knew. Sorry, I cannot, cannot, cannot speak to it. Thank you. I was curious about your statement that um, God could could have created happy creatures, and I or whatever you said. I, I thought you meant persons. And I'm thinking, well, would they have free will if they're, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, it sounded like they wouldn't be anything but happy, and so wouldn't there be a free will issue there? Well, this this is this is you are thinking along the lines that I wanted you to be thinking. I'm saying there's nothing contradictory by my understanding. I always stand under correction of the church. By my understanding, there's nothing contradictory to saying God could have created creatures that already would have been in the state of happiness. That would not be a contradiction. Um, but it would be the case that they would not have been in that period prior to being in the state of full happiness because St. Thomas does say once we are in the beatitude of heaven there really is there's no possibility of choosing against God at that point. I don't think there's any contradiction to saying God could have created us in that state but he chose not to do so. He chose to put us in a situation where we were going to be we can say we can say tested. So bear in mind, neither the angels nor Adam and Eve were created in the state of beatitude. Neither one was created in the state of the beatific vision. The good angels, upon passing, upon responding generously to God's call, are then invited into the beatitude of heaven. As are humans now, as saved by Christ, we are then can achieve beatitude. Adam and Eve were not created in beatitude. Had they been created in beatitude, then they could not have sinned. And, and free will is a very tricky thing. In heaven, you actually still will be free. St. Thomas would say, it's not that you're not free, but you will not choose against God, for sure. All right. Yeah. Dr. Kodabak, could you elaborate on how St. Thomas uses the term fitting as opposed to necessary? What would be a synonym for the way he's using the term fitting? That's a great question and one that I should be better prepared for. I want to say, well, just use the Latin, convenience. How's that help? <laughs> um, uh, I'm so used to using the term fitting, I'm thinking, what could be more fitting than the term fitting? Um, <laughs> Uh, exactly, um, but but absolutely fabulous question, and you show I'm, I'm not a good enough teacher of St. Thomas yet, because we need always to be, un particularly given how people use terms. You're right, the word fitting is not particularly used much now. Um, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm coming up short on another synonym. Um, I mean, so I just try to talk around. I mean, appropriate is definitely a, a, a synonym. It was, it was. I mean, note how he, he used it was 
most appropriate. So there's, there's many things, and I'll just, here is a neat thing, although, although I might not be able to give you much in the way of synonyms. There are many things in what God did that could have been otherwise, but we can look at it and say, ah, oh, this was just, it, it's so much fit with His wisdom. So appropriate, fitting, it goes, it's consonant with. This is consonant with the way He is so wise, it makes sense that, given how God is, that he would do something in this way. It is in his power that he had done it in that way. It's not in his power to make a square circle. It's not in his power to make something that would be free and voluntary, but not be responsible for what he does. There's a whole set of things you could say, it, it can't be otherwise. But then there are a number of things that you'd say, well, it was fitting that God did this, but it wasn't necessary. You didn't absolutely have to be that way, but it was such a great sign of his generosity. It fits so well with what we know of him. Thank you, Thank you very much, Dr. Sure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>